Welcome, everyone, to what promises to be a fascinating episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. This is actually an audio-only version of a debate that I hosted and moderated for the Institute of Arts and Ideas YouTube channel. It was live-streamed on a Monday, the, uh, the 25th of July, 2022, and I was honored to be asked by IAI to host a debate between my friends and past guests on this podcast, Carlo Rovelli, Sabina Hassenfelder, and Eric Weinstein, about the end of reality and the origins of quantum physics. And this, we took live questions from the audience, so I do hope that you'll subscribe to their YouTube channel as well. And uh, really, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel to get updates and links and ask, also ask questions. We took questions from folks of you that are members of my YouTube channel's uh, subscriber base. I want to uh, just request that you'll stay tuned for an interview with uh, past guest Sabina Hassenfelder about her new book, Existential Physics. We just recorded that, and it's a phenomenal book and a wonderful episode, if I don't say so myself. And of course, you know Eric Weinstein from his frequent appearances. He might be my most frequent guest on this podcast, as well as Carlo Rovelli, who's been a guest a couple times for his books, including his most recent book, Helgoland, which is the uh, subject matter uh, content of this episode about quantum mechanics. But of course, Carlo and I recorded the first ever audiobook version of Galileo's audio version, rather, of uh, Galileo's book called The Dialogue on Two World Systems. And Carlo played Salviati, the salvation. I played Segredo, the interlocutor between him, uh, Salviati, the genius of Galileo, uh, a mindset. And uh, and then the simpleton, Simplicio, played by my friend Lucio Picciarillo. Of course, we had, as well, uh, Fabiola Giannotti reading Galileo's own introduction uh, and dedication, and she, of course, is the director of CERN. And uh, and then, of course, we had Frank Wilczek reading the introduction from Albert Einstein to the dialogue. And this is a labor of love, and I hope you'll enjoy it. These folks need no introduction. I was really uh, blessed to be honored to be <laughs> asked to interview and uh, and give uh, the feedback between uh, the audience and these renowned thinkers. So stay tuned. This is part one. Uh, part two will be released uh, tomorrow. Uh, it's a long episode, almost an hour and a half in total length. And uh, I'll be back with some more information and updates uh, on the podcast. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to what promises to be a delightful midsummer's event, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere. We have joined together forces from the upper echelons of theoretical physics, along with yours truly, the token experimentalist, Brian Keating. And we are going to debate the nature of quantum mechanics and the end of reality. We will be looking into our crystal balls and thinking about the future of an interpretation that is only about 100 years old. And I can't really think of anybody more astute and more renowned to join us than the guests that we have arrayed today. And that's Dr. Sabina Hassenfelder, Dr. Eric Weinstein, and Professor Carlo Rovelli. I'll 
read you a little bit more about them in just a bit. But I want to frame the nature of today's debate on the Institute for Art uh, and Ideas. This is a phenomenal opportunity for free content for folks around the world to hear from the brightest minds. And I'm just so delighted to be your humble host uh, for today's event with three of my friends and past guests on my podcast and renowned authors who inspire me and thinkers that inspire me as well. So I want to tell you what the nature of this debate is. And it's kind of ironic in that people think of physicists as the most equipped to talk about the nature of reality. And yet physicists themselves battle tensions, uncertainties, anxieties about the very topic that we're going to be talking about today. And that's the nature of objective reality. Uh, many scientists assume that there is a central role of what's called an observer. And the question of whether or not what we observe is nature itself or not. And that was a question framed 100 years ago by the great Werner Heisenberg, um, uh, for which one of our guests, Carlo Rovelli, recently wrote a wonderful book. I'll uh, recount that in just a moment. But in our studies of reality and nature, the observer plays a role. And yet, what is it? Can we fully understand the bedrock laws of physics? And there is no bedrock more firm than quantum mechanics. It's given us our most precise tests in all of science as to the nature of what is knowable about our universe. And human beings, as we are called homo sapiens, sapien means uh, to one who knows. Uh, and the question of what do we know if the nature of quantum mechanics is not as solidified as we have come to think about it, at least in the popular imagination. So should we recognize science uh, and the reality that we study myself as an experimentalist, my guest as observers and, and, uh, and theoreticians, should we really have to formulate it in a way that's independent of an observer? And how could we do that without understanding the, the role of the three-pound supercomputer that sits on our shoulders, namely our brain? How do we interact with the things that we measure? Can we not remove the observer? As uh, our friend and Roger Penrose suggests, that consciousness, he has said, reeks of something quantum mechanical. And we all discussed with him his various ideas, Nobel laureate Roger Penrose, uh, which are controversial, but at least stem to make a connection between fundamental reality, observation, and the human mind, and how they all might play into the theory of consciousness itself, and how that in turn impacts our understanding of quantum mechanics. So I want to read to you the biographies. It's kind of formal for three of my friends, um, and in one case, a co-author, co-producer. Uh, so first is my good friend, Dr. Eric Weinstein, who is a podcast host who has a PhD in mathematical physics and has been on these IAI events in the past. And uh, that is Eric. Eric, you want to wave to the many millions of fans that are joining us out there. Um, Sabina Hassenfelder, again, is a great uh, friend of mine and a friend of the show that I host called Into the Impossible. She's a theoretical physicist who specializes in quantum gravity. And she's also the author of a second book, which is called Existential Physics, uh, which has a, a not an insignificant amount of interpretation about quantum mechanics, reality, and the role of the observer. This is coming out soon. She has a book uh, uh, that already exists called Lost in Math. If you just can't wait to get your hands on this in the next week or two, or until she appears on my YouTube channel, Into the Impossible. Uh, but she also has a YouTube channel of her own, uh, which is called Science Without the Gobbledygook. Uh, Sabina, how are you today? Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm great. Good to see you all. Excellent. And last, but certainly not least, 
is my friend Salviati himself, Carlo Rovelli, <laughs> a theoretical physicist who's made groundbreaking contributions in uh, physics of space and time. His books, uh, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, Reality is Not What It Seems, The Order of Time, and his most recent book, Helgoland, is actually about this very topic. Actually, I shouldn't say his most recent book because he did read The Voice along with myself, Lucio Picciarillo, Frank Wilczek, and uh, Fabiola Giannotti and, and James Gates of uh, Salviati in the first ever audio translation of Galileo's Dialogues. You can find that uh, uh, wherever audiobooks only are sold. So I want to outline the debate today, what we're talking about. It is a debate. It, we're all friends, but uh, even friends, you know, show their love. As, as it said, you know, what's not important is is uh, the things that we go through. It's the friends we we lose along the way, not no, the friends we make along the way. And today we're going to continue the friends uh, friendship. But we're going to talk about uh, three fundamental questions. We're going to talk about three questions, which I'll define in just a bit. Uh, a lot of it involves questions of observer, of what is reality? How do you know that you're real and not uh, famously a brain in a vat? Uh, these are questions that can be answered perhaps for the first time or may not be able to be answered. But the first question is, are they important to the understanding of it? I, I never go to my lab and say, hmm, do I exist before I do a particular cosmological experiment? Um, so we're going to have uh, three questions. First, we're going to have kind of an opening statement from each of the uh, discussants. Then we're going to I'm going to ask uh, the following three questions, three questions about three themes involving observation, analysis, if you will, and the role of the observer. And then there's going to be questions from you, the audience, that so we've taken on YouTube, on the IA channel where you're listening to this. I've taken some questions on my channel, Dr. Brian Keating, and you can tune in and, and retweet your question, and we'll try to pick up as many as we can. So we, this is going to run a little bit longer than the normal hour, uh, and so hopefully we'll be able to get to the most interesting questions possible. So if that all sounds good, fighters, put your hands up in the universal signal that we're ready to do battle. Okay. Um, so the first question um, that uh, I want to uh, pose is just kind of an opening statement from each one of you. I want to get your position on where you believe uh, this conversation should go. I'm going to give each one of you three minutes, um, and I want you to kind of discuss what is this question of the nature of reality? Is it hype? Is it reality? Is it something that is important to the average viewer out there? Remember, we're not only talking to three exceptionally qualified physicists and me, uh, but we're also talking about, uh, we're talking to the general public. And I view, as people know, listen to my channel, I think scientists have a moral obligation to give back to the public who pay our salary. So anyway, Carl, I'm going to start with you. Opening statement, what are your general thoughts on consciousness and uh, on, on quantum reality and the nature of reality? And then we'll get into these three themed debates. Carlo, take it away, please. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. Um, fast on, uh, on reality, to, um, then we'll have time to go more in depth. Uh, reality, of course, is essential for a physicist, but the reality is subtle. Uh, 300 years ago, the Copernican Revolution um, jump-started modern, modern development of science. And essentially, it was a discovery that to make sense about uh, the, um, the motion, what we see in the sky, the, the, the planet, the moon, uh, uh, the sun, and the stars, uh, we have to take into account that we're viewing this from our own perspective, to take into account the observer. 
not because in, there is something in our mind and not because it's uh, this consciousness involved, uh, not for some mysterious reason, but because we're sitting on a spinning rock. So we're seeing, seeing things spinning because, uh, because of that. So um, the observer it's always, has always played a role in science. We view the world from our perspective, with our instrument, with our eyes, and we have to take this into account. I think quantum mechanics is more of that. It's telling us uh, uh, basically the same thing. Of course, we talk about reality, what else? But reality is subtle because we view it through our eyes and we are a physical system like any other in the universe. So we view reality as a physical system interacting with the rest of the universe. So yes, we're talking about reality, what else? That's what we want to talk about. Uh, yes, we have to take into account the observer. No, in any way, this has to do with consciousness, uh, uh, the mind or anything like that. I think that uh, quantum mechanics has nothing to do with that. I think that the mind is a fantastic problem, but it has to do with our neurons, the complexity, and not in any way that I can understand directly with uh, quantum mechanics. But certainly, and I close here, quantum mechanics is telling us uh, that uh, this interactive way which makes reality. So the fact that like in the Copernicus system, what we see, it's interaction between the sky and us uh, goes very deep. And in a sense, uh, uh, all properties of all physical systems come about in interactions with other systems. Uh, so um, yes, quantum mechanics tell us that the observer is very important, but not because our mind is important or consciousness is important, uh, because reality is interaction. So we describe always uh, from the perspective of some physical system. Mm -hmm. That's where I stand. Very good. And Sabina, you have on many occasions uh, talked about the hype that surrounds this particular topic. There's no small amount of, uh, of insults hurled at people that talk about quantum healing, uh, quantum, all sorts of things uh, in your work. Talk about your position on this matter. Yeah, so um, I would say scientists can't understand reality independent of the observer, and they never have because scientists are observers. Uh, so we can't get rid of the observer. Um, but maybe I should say that I can't understand reality <laughs> independent of the observer, and I never have because I'm not sure that you actually exist. For this reason, I'm not a realist. I saw I saw that Eric um, made a remark on Twitter uh, that he's guessing he's in team, team reality. <laughs> um, I guess it puts me in, in the team anti-reality, whatever that means. Um, so I'm not a realist because I think it's scientifically indefensible. You know, I, I can't prove that anything exists besides me. So from the scientific perspective, I would say I am an in instrumentalist. The task of science is not to figure out some truth about reality, whatever that might mean. Um, but the task is to find descriptions of our observations, uh, not more and not less. But I have to admit, um, realism is a good working hypothesis. Um, so for practical purposes, uh, I think it makes sense that I assume you exist for the time being. Um, that seems to describe quite well what I observe. Um, so I'm, I'm happy, you know, to, to use realism um, as a kind of an assumption, but I think we have to keep in mind that, uh, after all, it's just, it's just a philosophy. This doesn't mean, though, that measurement outcomes um, depend on the observer. 
Um, we, we know that measurement outcomes depend on the measurement. Um, this isn't something which is specific to uh, quantum mechanics. It's generally always the case. Um, if you're measuring a small system with a big apparatus, uh, then um, you're changing the thing that you're, you're trying to measure. This is something we always have to take into account. Uh, like Carlo, I don't think that there's a particular role to be played by consciousness but I can't really um, exclude this either. It's just that I personally think that the problems which we currently have uh, in quantum mechanics and cosmology um, can be solved um, without uh, retreating to talks about consciousness. Mm -hmm. And Eric, uh, is team reality similar to team America? What, what exactly is team reality? And do we have to worry about the end of reality in any meaningful sense, at least not today, hopefully? Hopefully not today. Um, I, I think that in a certain sense, we're all trying to figure out what would a productive fight be um, and, and to do it constructively and collaboratively. So let me just say that I agree with Sabina that um, we can't for sure say that anyone else exists. But what I would say is that there's a simple article of faith many of us try to hide in our science. and. In my case, I would say it's that the universe is not maximally pathological. You could imagine a pathological universe in which you could not discover the nature of its rules because it's it's sort of constructed to uh, occlude your vision. And um, happily, we have not seemed to find ourselves in that situation. And I think that there's sort of a tale of two narcissisms here. There's the narcissism of believing that you're at the center of the story as an observer and that you have um, in some sense failed to recognize that that you're present and then there's another narcissism um, where you put yourself at, at the center and you, you you talk about relativism endlessly and the inability to remove yourself from the system and of course um, it's hard to get out of that sort of uh, devil in the deep blue sea problem so i would say that um, observers are important, but they may not be um, absolutely dispositive. You know, the status of the observer may, may not, in fact, be the, the crux on which everything hangs. And the last thing I would say, which is probably the most meaningful, is that uh, there's an expression, the map is not the territory. And when the world was not mapped well, maps changed frequently as discoveries of new lands were made or filled in with more specificity. One of the great dangers of stagnation in theoretical physics is that general relativity is now over 100 years old and our modern picture of um, quantum theory is about 50 years old. And so as these maps have not been changing for um, effectively a human lifetime, uh, maybe a short one, 50 years, we're in danger of seeing the same map over and over again and starting to believe that the map is the territory. And so if we were adding to the standard model into general relativity, I think we would be in less danger of codifying these things as reality themselves, as opposed to simply models of them on our way to something where the map might finally be the territory. And that would be sort of a final theory. <clears throat> Very good. Well, yeah, that kind of dovetails into our first theme of today, which is going to involve the observer. And I'm reminded of a quote uh, that Sabina mentions in Existential Physics, available wherever books will be sold in the future, if the future exists. And, and that is from Bertrand Russell, I'm paraphrasing here, 
um, the role of the observers is very subjective and, and also very biased because it depends on past events to construct, you know, prior probabilities. And in, in Bertrand Russell's, you know, uh, conjugation in this sense, uh, he he mentions, well, I'm going to change it. He, he basically is referring to the turkey, you know, who all throughout the summer is getting nice and plump and fat at least here in America. And then, you know, he's got a good life. He's fed every morning. Uh, and then uh, and then October rolls around, he gets some extra corn or whatever. And then November comes and all of a sudden he gets his head chopped off. Um, or for you vegans out there, I, I had to make a vegan version, Sabina. So, so in America, at least throughout October, the farmer takes care of the pumpkin uh, uh, all through the month of October. And then some kid carves its face open, okay, on Halloween. Um, can we really talk about the, and I'm sorry for, for any Europeans who don't get either one of those references, uh, but the question that I have is, is, is really one of, you know, do we get mired down? Uh, Merman, I think it was, said, you know, shut up and calculate. For me, I was told by Jim Peebles, shut up and measure, you know, make observations rather. Uh, you know, the question is, what is the importance, if any, and I'll start with Carlo, what is the importance of talking about uh, uh, the, an observer? Can we uncover uh, objective reality without understanding the structures, the mind, the limitations of an observer. As Carlo, uh, could you address that? Is it, do we have to talk about the nature of the of the person doing the operation of observation? Um, well, uh, let me let me address this question of the light. Also, what Sabine and Eric said uh, before of this debate of sort of realism versus mentalism, as, uh, as Sabine put at the beginning. Um, I, I think I'm not too far from any of, uh, of the two of Eric and, uh, and, and, and Sabine, and I'll come to your, to your question in, in, in the following sense. Sabine started off by saying, um, I, uh, I, I cannot say for sure that there is a reality out there uh, beside, uh, beside me. And of course, she's right. This is a, this is a well-known fact. Uh, but I think she, she would agree in, uh, in continuing this uh, by saying, well, and this is not very interesting after all, because uh, I don't think that science, this is the main point that I want to get at. I don't think that science is about uh, um, find certainty about things. That's never have been the uh, motivation, at least for the best scientists around, uh, and for the people I think who have in different manners understood what science is through the centuries and today. Science is not about um, uh, uncovering the final objective reality or finding complete certainty about something. Science is a process in which we learn about what is around us through our interaction with, uh, with the rest, uh, and we come up with a, uh, a story, a tools for thinking about what we call reality, which is the thing we interact with. Um, are we sure of any of this? No, of course, like the Turkey of your story, uh, we're not sure of anything, but we have extremely good uh, reasons for taking very seriously uh, facts like uh, that the moon is there, even if I don't see, and that there are um, the kind of astronomical things that two brains, uh, the two brains see in the sky, in the in the in the in the sky, and that inside the sun there are actually the, the nuclear reactions. Uh, so science is credible. It's credible. It's reliable. It's credible in its uh, in its predictions uh, without any need of uh, uh, making philosophical ultimate state uh, statement about yes, we know the absolute reality. Uh, but nevertheless, using heavily the notion of reality, because this is one of the main tools that um, 
um, physicists uh, and scientists in general work. Scientists work with a mixture of uh, instrumentalists. They're very ready, the best ones, to take what they, what they know for, for reality out there and, as Eric was saying, be able to change the mind about that is a thing that is, um, that is real, right? I mean, the, 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 what we think is out there in the world, that the world is made of, is changing, and it will be changing again. So reality changes the best way we understand it, the way we understand it. So what we're doing science, I think we are uh, evolving a best way for interacting with what we call reality um, outside. And uh, uh, we can use the expression objectivity, we can use the expression of uh, reality without being afraid of, uh, but also without overplaying, uh, overplaying this. We're never certain about anything. That's an, um, that's the bottom line. And then you ask, uh, do we have to take into account the mind of the observer? Um, I would say not in any substantial way, but very often in a useful way, of course. I mean, you say you don't ask about your mind if you go to the to the laboratory, but maybe you were drunk and I take into account your 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 mind. That's what you you, you say. And, maybe. Uh, and we, what do you mean maybe? maybe. And, <laughs> Well, I don't know. <laughs> and I have to count the, how my instrument work and the, the limitation of my brain, which certainly are, and uh, and all that. And ultimately, I also have to take into account that, of course, what I'm interacting with, uh, uh, it's a reality I'm interacting with. So I see through the through the interaction, and I should not follow. And I close here in what Eric called the two narcissism, especially the narcissism of saying, well, the only thing I'm sure is myself, and therefore I start by assuming that I exist everything, everything else, no. I'm an only child. This is a kind of mistake that only child children make when they're very small, but then maybe perhaps a little bit later than those who have brothers and sisters, even the only children learn that mm. uh, no, it doesn't make, it's not useful to think about universe that as you the only existing thing. You being me, Carlo, we, we humanity, we our language or anything like that. We are part of a story and we understand as better as part of a story and we have to close the circle um, because that story, of course, we access it through our connection with the rest of the reality. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'm also an only child, but I'm not my parents' favorite child. Um, Eric, when we think about, <laughs> we think about this, I, I'm reminded of, you know, kind of this statement, you know, the, the hard problem of consciousness, you know, David Chalmers' uh, famous statement, but I think it's more like the hard problem of, uh, of the measurement problem. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe respond to Carlo, um, but, but also, aren't we really just talking about stuff that's been trodden ground for 100 years, as you, as you said, 50 years, certainly? It's a measurement problem at some level of, of, of uh, bedrock, right? Yeah. And, you know, the problem is that I would like to just dispense with this all, but I would not be fair to the system because uh, like Bell's inequalities were done relatively late uh, in the quantum story. So that even though I have a prejudice that says we shouldn't uh, wallow infinitely in the foundations of quantum theory, that's a good counterexample where I would have been wrong is that I probably would have discouraged Dr. Bell from uh, doing his work. Um, so it may be, and it's possible that all of this theorizing about quantum foundations and the measurement problem will be productive. I mean, to the extent that I've tried to contribute at all to that discussion, I've tried to take the point of view that classical um, theory 
is either deterministic or mute. Uh, if you ask a good question, it's deterministic. And if you ask a bad question, it doesn't attempt to help you out in any way to pretend that your question was good. Quantum mechanics uh, is exactly as deterministic as classical theory when you're asking a good question. And we should say what a good question is. The state of the system uh, is presented with a huge infinite list of multiple choice answers. Are you in this state? Are you in that state? Are you in the other state? And we call those eigenfunctions uh, or eigenvectors, but we might as well just call them multiple choice answers. And, you know, they have different values. Those would be, you know, is it seven? Is it 17.3? Those would be called eigenvalues. And the key question is, is the state of the system on the list of good answers for that question? The question would be called an observable. So that's to try to make this a little bit less physics-y and a little bit more just common sense. A bad question would be a question in which the state of the system is not represented by any particular answer on the list. So you come back from, let's say, Europe and you get a landing card which says, "Is did you accumulate uh, funds, answer A, all in pounds, B, all in euros, C, all in Swiss francs, all in Swedish kroner. You in fact have a bunch of different stuff in your pockets. So that's a bad question. Classically, you just can't answer the landing card. Quantum mechanically, if you ask the question, suddenly all of your change transmutes into euros or Swiss francs based on the percentage of the uh, amount of money that you had in each currency. And so that weird accommodating nature has been my little contribution to try to reframe the quantum weirdness debate, which is why not why is quantum theory probabilistic, but why is quantum theory so accommodating of lousy questions, uh, which is a completely different sort of feel to it because it's, it is deterministic. We don't talk about the other part of quantum theory, which is the amazing propagation where physicists do most of their work learning how to propagate an initial state into a final state. Um, because that in fact is a deterministic process and it doesn't give us those sort of quantum feels that we're used to talking about. So I find it very strange that physicists don't talk enough about quantum propagation, which is deterministic we talk about the weirdness of the collapse of the state function, but in my mind, that's the sign that you're trying to work in an effective theory that doesn't really have full ability to, to wrestle with reality. And so I'm very unmoved by um, the attempts to answer those questions within our current framework. I'd rather expand the framework and then try to get at those questions rather than imagine that we can solve the puzzle of quantum measurement from this particular set of models. And when you hear people say that space-time has got to go and that we need a, a really big new theory in order to, to make progress, what they're effectively saying is there may be new maps of this territory. And in the new maps, these are not huge paradoxes, but I really feel like if we want to answer these questions, the thing to do is new models, new equations, new Lagrangians, rather than trying to figure it out from here, because I think we have a pretty solid answer that this is state of the art for the most part relative to the maps of reality that we built. And I think that it's going to be the new maps of reality that are going to allow us to make progress. Great. Um, Sabina, 
um, you're sort of a vocal opponent, if I'm not mistaken, of panpsychism and the, the role of inanimate physical objects playing a role. Um, keep in mind that there's over 1,500 people observing us right now on YouTube, all of whom should push the thumbs up button, like, and subscribe to this channel, please. Uh, but what, where do you fall in this debate? I mean, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you, you don't believe in panpsychism. So does, is there any sort of crisp measurement where we could really dissociate an observer from the observed or not? So um, <laughs> you threw me a little bit off track because I was about to say something entirely different. Oh, sorry. Um, Go ahead. So, uh, first what... of all, I entirely agree I disturbed the measurement. with Eric that we, we need some kind of new theory um, uh, and so on. So, so, so I agree with this. I was a little bit perplexed because um, Eric's answer wasn't the one <laughs> that I expected uh, to Carlo because um, Carlo kind of questioned this idea that we will ever have a fundamental final description of reality. Uh, whereas Eric said earlier, uh, one day maybe the map, map will be the territory. So, so uh, I'd be kind of interested to hear how, um, <laughs> how you reply to that kind of um, thing. But to come back to the measurement problem, I mean, there's a reason the measurement problem is called measurement problem and not observer problem, because you don't necessarily need an observer to make a measurement. What you need to make a measurement is an apparatus. Um, so I, I really don't see how anything like consciousness uh, even comes into the question. Um, but this doesn't mean that the role of the observer doesn't play any role uh, in physics. I mean, for one thing, as, as you yourself certainly know, um, our own position and what we can observe with our telescopes introduces a bias in the in the data that we get which we have to take into account like if we look out in the cosmos um there are certain stellar objects or, or galaxies and so on that we can observe and others that we can't observe and if we want to make some statistics out of this we um, have to take into account uh, which direction did we look into uh what's the kind of data that our telescopes can even um capture. Um, so this is certainly something that we need to take into account. Again, this doesn't really have anything to do with consciousness and so on, but it certainly has something to do with, with what we can observe. And also this whole story uh, of the anthropic principle comes in there, um, which, um, you know, a lot of people get easily offended about this. Um, but uh, let's be honest, physicists never really talk actually about life when they talk about the anthropic principle, um, right? They they talk about certain preconditions for life, like uh, carbon or sufficiently complex molecules and that kind of stuff. And um, we certainly know that carbon exists, right? And this puts a constraint on the kind of theories that we can write down. They have to allow for the existence of carbon. And, and, and so I think that these are certain in a certain sense, those are observer constraints, uh, observer created constraints to some extent. And then let me uh, mention one final point, which I understand isn't really the focus of the debate, where we have to um, keep in mind uh, how our brains work, because Carlo brought this up. Uh, it's um, that in the end, um, the way that science progresses is not just um, by one individual, but we have to work together in a community and we have to evaluate other people's proposals. And um, there are certain cognitive biases that come into this and they are based on the way that our brain works.
right? Um, and this is something that we have to take uh, into account, I think, um, if we want science to work properly. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap on the first part of the special two-part episode of the Into the Impossible cross-posting, cross-hosting <laughs> cross, uh, a debate uh, alongside the my friends at the Institute for Arts and Ideas who host things like the How the Light Gets In Festival. If you're in the UK, you should definitely do that. I'm hoping to make an appearance there next year. I can't make it this year, but... Uh, due to travel constraints, but by next year, I hope to be able to make it there. Uh, subscribe to the podcast for part two coming out tomorrow, and that will involve the um, the topics that you, the listeners, submitted, if you're a subscriber to my YouTube channel or to the II's YouTube channel or to either one of our Twitter accounts. Mine is Dr. Brian Keating or Instagram. So please uh, do that for future episodes. This, I was told, was the most popular live stream they've ever done, so I feel quite proud of that. Part two talks, takes a deeper dive into the role of the observer in quantum mechanics crossed with cosmology. So don't miss that one. Um, as I often do, I really don't ask you for much. There are no ads in this episode. Um, and so I just have an advertisement to just leave a rating and or a review of this podcast on Apple uh, Podcasts, where you can do both on Spotify, on Audible. You can only leave a constellation, hopefully five stars or more. And uh, But on Apple, you can leave a review, uh, such as this listener, uh, Mikey Biggs uh, from the USA, said he was turned on to this podcast from another podcast, and I have no regrets. Uh, phenomenal content and information. Thank you so much uh, from Mikey. That means the multiverse to me. You two can do that. And really, that's all I ask for, for your humble support. Other than that, enjoy my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list, where I'll apprise you of all the current going-ons goings -ons in the universe that I call home and you call home and hopefully I'll take suggestions and recommendations and you might even win a tiny bit of space schmutz, a meteorite, as I mentioned at the end of this conversation with these renowned thinkers and friends. Anyway, that's all for now. Stay tuned for part two tomorrow. Don't forget to uh, leave a rating and a review if you can. Uh, it really helps me out a lot. 